Hi, welcome to Almost Cooperstown. I'm Mark. And this is Gordon. And we love talking about baseball. So here we are, Sunday, March 6th, and the players have made a new offer to the owners. And I sit here right now hopeful that these idiots are going to get something done this week. I'd be kind of surprised if they didn't get something done at this point this week. It seems like everything is moving in that direction, and it really felt like... In some ways, the fact that it's gone this far was one of the two sides calling the others bluff. I'm not. I'm not sure which side called the bluff <laughs> here, but the fact that we're that that we're going to miss two series this year is showing somebody was you know calling another team's bluff there. And, and you made the point off air, and I think it's a good one that you know this is a a battle between millionaires and billionaires. So people will probably side with the millionaires because it's more fun to go after billionaires, but both are um, certainly at fault at not coming to these kinds of, you know, middle grounds as they're starting to get to two months ago, two months ago. Right. I mean, I think that I'm sure if we went list by list by every player demand, there would be things in there that would be unreasonable, but there's a lot of things in there that are it. And when you look at a lot of the teams and the, the rules that and the changes that are being proposed, you kind of understand that the reason why a lot of the owners are objecting to them aren't because of a competitive integrity reasons. It's because they just don't want to shell out the money in some of the cases. Well, and I think that's that's a great segue into where we want to go here because uh, it's the small market teams that you know are not investing in, in their teams when they are good for any length of time, you know, maybe a year or two, but at a, from a consistent basis, they are not going to approach the luxury cap. And in fact, um, a lot of times it's being said that they're pocketing the money for being under the cap that the teams that are over the cap have to put into the pool and they walk away with a fat check. I think, I mean, I think a team that I want to use kind of like as an example, I think about would be like a team like the Reds where like, they had a couple decent teams throughout the early 2000s and 2010s. Like there was a year or two in there where they're like, yeah, they made the night 2015. They like, made the wild card, they made the wild card game and maybe series. And they were poking around like maybe they were going to be something. But like when you went and look at their big off season move the next year, okay, we made a playoff. We had some young guys emerge and who do we get? Did they ever go out and they get the, the top line guy? No, it, it, like the best thing I could think of is like way back when, when like a whole bunch of pitchers and Bronson Arroyo, oh, that's a really long time. Yeah, that's ago. going back. But I remember there were a whole bunch of pitchers and Bronson Arroyo. They went with Bronson Arroyo as their big free agent signing. And and I think it was Jim Bowden on MLB who said that the Reds are the smallest market in in the major leagues, which surprised me a little bit. It doesn't seem right. But they're they're certainly one of the oldest franchises. I, I guess maybe that's why I, it seems not right to me. And that's why we think of them. And, and the other franchise that's right in there, and it's only 300 miles away, um, the Pittsburgh Pirates, man, they're very similar to way, the way the Reds are, right? They, they made the wild card a few years when they had McCutcheon back in, in the 13, 14, 15, and then nothing. I mostly remember because I think they played the Reds in a wild card play in They game. did in 2015. And I only really remember that game because that was the game where PNC Park got so loud they rattled Johnny Cueto and he dropped the ball on the mound oh, for a right, balk. that's right. Right, I forgot about and that. And that was like, a, and you're watching Pittsburgh 
like shake out of this for as far as I'm aware with entirety of my lifespan doldrums where they've just been a bottom feeder team. Like even when they had bonds in the early nineties, I don't, were they any good? Well, they were good. They were a thorn on the side of our Mets. Actually. Uh, it was the Mets and the pirates, uh, you know, that, that, and the Mets weren't very good in the early nineties, uh, quite frankly, but the, they were better than the Mets and, and vibe for the, the division champion. Just but you know, pretty much since they then, had a playoff against the Braves, a, a, a big one there. I, I look at it since 1995, right? No, no, 27 years of, of not oh, much of irrelevancy. And, and I look at those two franchises as like, yeah, I'm not surprised that their owners don't want to spend any money. Like, well, I guess I'm surprised their owners don't want to spend any money more so that like you have two fan bases that should be dedicated to baseball. You've got rich storied legacy. It should be pretty easy to make those markets, not small markets. Well, and, and so be, because there's not real baseball to talk about, I, I went down a rabbit hole um, and started looking into what I remember as a kid as a really terrific rivalry. And when I began to peel back the layers between the Reds and the Pirates in the 70s, um, I was actually, you know, really happy to see that, wow, that really was an amazing rivalry, and it was better than I even remember in a lot of ways. I mean, each of those franchises have won, what, five World Series in there? They've both won five World Series. They've both, both been to nine uh, uh, World Series themselves. Okay. So they won five of those. They've been around, both of them, since 1881, both franchises. Not in the same league. I mean, they're basically, you know, original franchises then in that sense. Well, certainly since 1900, they were both, you yeah. know, charter you, National you League franchises like by that original time. baseball franchises. But, but the, uh, the Pirates were, I think, in the American Association and the Reds in the National League, and then eventually they all got together. And so, yeah, but since 1881, they have 10... Uh, championships uh, between them in, I'm not really good at math, but that sounds a lot like uh, 280 years. Mm, 180. No, no, add the two of them together. Oh, add the two of them together, yes. Right, 1880s, 140 for each team, so 280 plus years. (laughs) Well, well, it doesn't entirely work that way, but I understand what you're going for here. It's it's not a good look. So, And and before 1970, um, I guess the Reds were good in the late 50s, and the Pirates won the Bill Mazeroski, you know, seventh-game home run or whatever in, in 1960. Um, and, but the, the Reds hadn't won anything in, in quite some time since 1940, and then we got to the 70s, and all of a sudden it changed. Well, you really didn't expect this this to happen, you know, because you didn't th- see these two teams as you know yearly, uh, you know, perennial contenders. Correct, you, you, you thorns on everybody's side, and uh, divisional play began in 1969. Uh, the Mets, of course, winning uh, and going to the World Series, beating the Orioles. And the Orioles uh, came back in 1970, and they went to the World Series, and they won, but they beat the Cincinnati Reds in the in the, in the World Series. So mm-hmm. that was the sort of arrival of the Reds as like, oh, the Reds, the Reds are good. You know, it was even that kind of a thing. Um, but what that belied, and I think in 1970, the um, the Pirates – uh, it was were were a good team, uh, and they you know did not make the playoffs. Uh, they did make obviously did not make the playoffs. They started playing each other because that was the sort of announcement of these two teams were going to be good. Um, in 1972 was the first real series between the two of them that you know re- was was really a fantastic series. But I think it's just so interesting in because like when you look at these two teams. It's right. You know, nobody expected them to become good, but that's because I think baseball, you're, the development of a franchise is something that takes a lot longer. You can't. It's, it's much harder to get any kind of singular player, which just turns a franchise 
from being in one direction to being in another direction. And I think that what you saw is probably the, the Reds made a bunch of good moves leading up to 1970. Excellent point. Excellent point. In fact, as a little kid, I was so disappointed that Johnny Bench won the Rookie of the Year in 1967, uh, and and Jerry Kuzman, who you know I was a Met fan, I was a big fan of, uh, didn't. And I felt he, you know, Kuzman went 19 and 12 and had a really good year. Bench was better, but I'm a kid, and I really wanted you know my guy to uh, to he make win. And 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 so certainly Bench, you know, proved out to live up to his rookie, you know, and and so did Kuzman to that degree. But Bench was one of the greatest catchers. Some might say the greatest catcher of all time, uh, and he was the real change in that red team. Once they got him, it seemed like all of a sudden the other guys got better around him. And uh, That's and what look, they say about the great ones. There are a lot of Hall of Fame players on those Reds teams and stuff. You had Tony Perez, mm-hmm. you know, you had Joe Morgan who came on a little bit later. Uh, you know, even Tom Seaver played for the Reds um, in the 1970s after he got traded uh, from the Mets and they been that massacre. Well, I think it's interesting when you look at the fact that divisional play started in '69 and. And then almost immediately after you had the rise of these two franchises, because they actually throughout the 70s traded back and forth, basically control of weirdly the Reds in the NL West at the time and the Pirates in the NL East. And I think even though they weren't in the same division yet, that rivalry of both of them competing not only for the division crown, but winning the National League is what actually turned that into a rivalry. On top of the fact that they were close proximity. I know, that's right. The, the, the Pirates and the Reds today, I think, have a natural dislike for one another that is born out of that 1970s playoff. Uh, Those playoff races. races. Because, because I think rivalry, especially in baseball, is so much location-based. It's, necess- it's much less likely than you have a bunch of good games against a team over a period of time and then a rivalry develops out of that. Like, yeah, you can have that, but that more results in like a – I just always remember they play them really tough. Like, I don't remember why, but, like, I always remember them. Let's play against the Diamondbacks really well. Like, for whatever reason, they just kind of have the Diamondbacks numbers. But you don't necessarily get it's not a rivalry. A the Mets rivalry. Diamondbacks are not no. a rivalry, right. But it's it's location-based, too. That's true. The They're only 300 miles apart, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Exactly. So those two teams and those the, both of those cities of people are much more familiar with one another than somebody from across the country. So I think that's why you had this very intense rivalry develop in the, in the 70s. And that's why you end up with them competing not only in 70 for the uh, NL title, but they also competed in 71 when the Pirates won it. Right. The Pirates. So the Pirates win the World Series and they beat the Orioles in, in the World Series. But they, they, they get to the World Series. That's 11 years after the 1960. And so now in two years, the Reds get to the World Series, don't win. The Pirates get to the World uh, Series and do win. And then they were kind of off and running. Right. Well, then, then the rivalry, as you said, in 72, that's when it really became a thing, because now you had them playing against each other again. For the NL pennant. And that was a great series, too. Um, what was particularly like amazing about that series? Like, was it the games or? The, the games themselves, um, I, I remember the series ended with a wild pitch. Um, that, there's probably not a lot of series you could say that no, about. No, definitely not. And George Foster uh, actually ran home with the winning run of the series, and the Reds went on to the World Series, um, which they proceeded to lose. Uh, they lost the first of what were three consecutive World Series wins for the Oakland A's. In 72, 73, and 74. So, um, but already now you had three straight years, right? 1970, 71, and 72. Uh, and then you go to 73 and... The pesky Mets get in the way. They, they, well, that was a weird year. They didn't play 162 games. 
Uh, the Mets were mired in last place uh, for, for a lot of the season and got hot late, and the other teams were just as terrible as they were, and they backed the, into I, it almost. Pirates were dealing with a cloud over their head that entire year, well, given the tragedy in the offseason. Right, right. Roberto Clemente died in a, in a tragic plane crash delivering supplies to earthquake victims in Nicaragua on New Year's Eve of 1971. So you got to think about that from that perspective. And the interesting thing about Clemente is he has exactly 3,000 hits. Yeah, and it exactly. Exactly 3,000 hits. So they win the World Series. They're on, on, on cloud nine, and he, you know, he passes away um, in, in, at, the, at the end of that season in 1972. So, um, yeah, I, I, they were reeling. They, they were, and, the, and the Reds, they were good, but not good enough that particular year. Yeah, or, interestingly enough, the next year. Because the next year in 74, they played pretty well. They had, I think, a bunch of different wins. But the problem is they were behind the Dodgers. The Dodgers were a good team in 1974. Really good. Won 102 games. And the Pirates managed to win the NL East. But I I don't think it was enough for them to get by the the Dodgers or then the A's who finished out winning their third in a row that year. And and three in a row was, still a kid going on. That was like, wow, three in a row. You don't do three in a row. That's in baseball. And then so the 70s kind of went that way. You had the win with the the Orioles won in 70. The Pirates won in 71 against the Orioles. In 72, three and four, the A's win. And now we're going to go to 75 and 76, and they're back-to-back. And that's back-to-back, the Cincinnati Reds. And I mean, and you called this down. So I guess I have a hard time appreciating how good was that 75 Reds team? Well, it, you know, it, it, dominant teams you think would be dominant pitching and dominant hitting. And the Reds and the Pirates, for that matter, always had really, really good hitting. The pitching was a little suspect for both teams, but they were so good at scoring runs that a lot of times it didn't matter. That was those two years. The Reds pitching was better than average. It was so when you had the fantastic hitting and you had Good pitching, solid pitching, up and down. Um, yeah, man, they were tough to beat. Yeah, just like I mean, just to give people context of how good that lineup was, that team had an OPS plus of 108 that year. That is nutty. Yeah, right. And and you know there were guys on the team. Uh, and you bring up names like uh, shortstop. You've never heard of Dave Concepcion, yeah. uh, and and I remember him earlier in his career as a good field, not hit shortstop. But at the end of his career, like a lot like Ozzie Smith. He figured out how to be a better hitter and was a much more productive and contributing hitter than he was. And yet, in my mind, he kind of had the um, the label of being a, a field first, you know, hit second guy. But he was a better hitter than than I even thought when I'm back looking at his career. And, and these two teams, I mean, once again, you have these two teams meeting in the NLCS that year to play each other. It's just unfortunate for the Pirates that that Reds team was on a mission that year after having lost the way they did after they were just like just kind of short behind the Dodgers. Didn't they just like obliterate yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, they, they they took the Pirates out that year, and 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 I, I maybe they took everybody out that yeah. year. And and the next year, they you know in nineteen seventy six, you know that team might have even been better, the Reds team, uh, you know, and and they you know pitched well uh, and they hit like crazy. And you had guys like Ken Griffey's dad on that team. Um, we didn't talk about Pete Rose being a consistent member of all those Reds teams. Um, he's not a Hall of Famer, but you know I I, I guess but you he kind of you, you kind of could think of it that way. I mean, really, the only thing you don't have out of those teams are, like, the pitcher you point to as the guy. And and, and I didn't realize that when Seaver went from the Mets there, I mean, I knew he was good, but I'm pretty mad as a Mets fan because he's not there anymore, and how good he was with the Reds. It's just that when you look at the staff, nobody sticks out. Seaver was not Mets Seaver with the Reds. No, 
No, I, I'd say that's a fair thing to say, but he was really, he was really good. good, but it was just, it's just interesting when you look back at how much of this was just an offensive machine going through people year after. You had a guy at second base win back-to-back MVPs in Joe Morgan. That's the only time a second baseman has ever won back-to-back MVPs in, in baseball history. But that's but as soon as you get past 76 and you get into 77, when they acquire Seaver, actually, that's when that Reds team... It's just they couldn't keep doing it. That lineup couldn't keep bailing them out of game after game after game. And guys, as they started to take a step back, you saw them. They just they just they were never able to get put it together. They had that post series hangover and they started really slow in 77. And and, and let's face it, the Dodgers, we said, were a good team in 74 and they won. So the Reds were a thorn in the Dodgers side in the division itself. Right, so the Dodgers came back in '77 and they made the World Series, uh, only to lose to the Yankees. Um, and they did the same in '78, by the way. So the '70s are weird because you had three in a row, two in a row, two in a row, and the Pirates on the bookend in 1971 and '79. And and it's just so interesting that it closes that way with what you would think would be. If anything, it should be the Reds still on the upswing as the dominant franchise. But here come the Pirates in '79, almost to kind of like steal one away from under their noses in a sense yeah i'd say by 79 the reds were um were they getting little, older a little longer in the tooth and bench wasn't quite the same player uh and morgan was obviously in his mid-30s by then so a lot of they they, they got old wasn't this the we are family pirates yeah 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 so there was a song by the group sister sledge in 1979 that that came out early that year and for whatever reason the pirates now i, I don't know if you've seen pirate uniforms from the 1970s they were pretty goofy so they they well, those were like the, the Bright yellow. They weren't orange. banana yellow, but right, they're kind of orangey yellow, and they they they, look, they had all kinds of lines on yep. them, and then they had the caps that looked like railroad conductor caps. They weren't like regular baseball caps. It was not a super flattering look. Well, you better be good, and the 1979 Pirates were really good, um, and and it sort of you know was unexpected because obviously they had lost in '75 and they were itching to get back to the Reds, and sure enough. Um, in 1979, they had their chance. Um, they won their division. And, they bo- yeah, and they played each other. And in, so did the Reds. And it's funny because I, f- I remember you talking about this thing. It was one of the closest 3-0 series you've ever seen. Right, right. There's back and forth, back and forth. So if you just look at the series and said, well, the Pirates swept, swept the Reds, I guess it was easy. It wasn't easy. They had to fight every inch of the way for that world for that that playoff thing and i mean it was two extra inning losses in that series right 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 right. and that's when you when when you have two extra inning games in the same series it's going to be really hard for it to be a close series and i remember um so a guy who made the last out in the first two games in extra innings ended up playing for our mets later on in ray knight (laughs) and so let me know if you're the guy who makes the last out in the first two playoff games that you lose you know your team's going to be a little bit down in the dumps when they come out for game three and that's what happened the pirates killed him in game three it was seven to one right and And it it, just you can't get back up after you have heartbreaking losses like that like and and the other thing is is the the confidence the other team has after getting two wins like that. If Pittsburgh had come out and lost Game Three, they wouldn't have been worried because you already beat them twice in those two heartbreaker games. You know you can do it again. 
Right, right. So the Hall of Fame names that I mentioned, right, right, the, the, the Clemente uh, yeah. for the Pirates, Willie Stargell. Um, you certainly you know his name. He was he was uh, an older player we in '79. Pops, right? He went by Pops. Uh, won the co MVP with our, one of our faves, Keith Hernandez, yeah, in nineteen seventy nine. Because he was old in '79. He was, right? he was, he was. But he, you know, he kind of had a comeback season because he had you know been injured on so and had, off okay, before so that. '79 Pirates are really kind of like a magical team. Oh, totally. Totally. And, you know, they had great players like Al Oliver. And, and I think I probably talked about we'll Al Oliver. About him. Like, like a, that player a lot. He hit a lot of home runs. He just was a masher of a hitter. So, you know, you had some really, you know, big stars. And, and, and we talked about the Reds Hall of Famers. And even earlier in the decade, you know, you had, you know, players like Manny Sanguian and you had um, uh, Richie Hebner. And guys, you've never heard of these guys, but these were consistently good players. And the thing about both teams and i think this is really important i thought about this at the end is i noticed as a young fan how many players of color right african-american players were on both teams now in cincinnati you had tony perez he was from puerto rico um you had other you know geronimo you know you had a lot of players that came not just african-american but these two teams fielded what you might say minority you know heavy teams at a time when that wasn't happening as Mm -hmm. much in baseball there could be as many as eight guys on the field of color well that you know, the, the, that didn't happen. That didn't happen back in the. It was only look 1970s. It's only 25 years, not even from Jackie Robinson. Right. It's still not that far when you think about it. So, uh, and I was really you know impressed, and I thought, wow, you know these these guys are good. They play hard. They're smart. I think that's a real you know great thing for baseball to have you know and them. That's why you still do see so many Pirates and Red fans that are older all across the country. Because they had, they were those teams were good, and they developed a fan base. And then when you suck for the past twenty seven years, that's why you don't. That's why you have nobody in the stands because people are when you don't even try and put out a good product year after year. Now I'm sure the, the Pirates team and the Cincinnati's Red organization will be insulted by me saying that that they're not putting out a good product, but. I mean, we watched them play baseball. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I don't think there's anything you can say against the fact that the Pirates, you know, basically get close, and that seems to be good enough for them. They're not, uh, The best compliment I can give them, which if you know this team is not a compliment, is at least they're not the Marlins. Well, yeah, that's a look for Derek, Derek Jeter to walk away from that situation tells you a lot. Tells you a lot about Loria. About, about because the, that way, willingness to win and, and to put me, the resources behind it. All that screams is, is that – if they are ever good by mistake, he is going to sell every one of those players because he's not interested in having a, an expensive lineup. And I think you have teams like Cincinnati, you have teams like Pittsburgh, and I think I said it earlier in this episode that like if you put a good team on the field for three or four years in a row, maybe you have to spend a bunch of money. But if you put a good team on the field for all those years in a row – you would have big fan bases again, and they wouldn't be the Cincinnati wouldn't be the smallest market in the in the MLB. What weren't the Pirates sort of on their way with McCutcheon back in thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen when they made the playoffs? And and I ran into some Pirate fans in New York at that time, and we were talking about the Pirates, and they said, "Oh, we love Kutch. They love him so much. He's our favorite player." So they, were, I was like, "Wow, the Pirates have a guy, right?" And so what did they promptly do with McCutcheon? They traded him or let him go for like nothing. And, and, and I'm like, you know, he was like a, a, a real icon in Pittsburgh. Now, now what, what, what does that mean? Like McCutch didn't have any like uh, warts as a player? No, he totally did. But the fact that you were willing to get rid of your best player for virtually nothing as part of some rebuild when you were rebuilding from the only, like, like, unfortunately, 
as an organization, you might have to be okay with having a not World Series but playoff contending team for a few years. But but what we what we both feel is that when the teams get close, they should go all in and consider right. busting he, over the just try the, the uh, non-existent even salary if, cap. Even if even if you know your analytics and your gut tells you, oh my god, even if we add this guy, we're probably still not good enough. For your fans, for the people that spend money, and even for the players in your organization, the fact that you as an organization went out and made a move to actually try and win is going to put in a culture around you that you care. And I think that's probably why you have so few fans of those organizations is because if the team itself feels like it doesn't care, why should you as a fan? Right, right, and and if you if you think about what we talked about the Pirates and Reds rivalry in the seventies, and there surprisingly, and and maybe we'll go back and talk more about this in another episode, there aren't that many sort of decade long rivalries, and it's a little hard to parse it when you put it into a starting in seventy or sixty or fifty and going to the nine because it could be a ten year period where two teams were really competitive that just didn't happen in that particular ten year in that period. particular ten year period on the decade. But we'll take a look at that stuff. And but I think come I'm back. very curious to see. So and, and and does it have to happen after divisional play began? Because you'd need to have these sort of divisional playoffs that would be epic after a regular season in which the teams might have competed a bunch of times look at the Dodgers and Giants this past year right they mm-hmm. they had some really great games during the regular season um they the Giants ended up winning the division and they play in this silly one game and it's all over bye bye San Francisco you know is gone uh and and the Dodgers moved on so you know th- if the Dodgers and Giants did this for the next four years or five out of the last next seven years, now you'd have a divisional rivalry Reed, that would be that's would, lasted a period of time, that's and not like, even an interdivisional rivalry, right no, within the division. It's within the division, yeah. So uh, I think you know it, it's going to be hard to find other you know epic like they played them every you know two or three years over a ten year period. You know the Yankees and the Dodgers played in the World Series a, a million times. It seen back in the day in the forties and the, and. and even the, the 50s, but I, I think within the league, you have to have those regular season games as well as the playoff games yes. to really create that kind of a rivalry. You need to be able to po- po- point to some random June night game that you that, that was a crazy game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think about more recently the Braves, you know, when they won their 14 out of 15 division championships, which is, just, you know, it's mind boggling. I hate that it's the division in which our favorite team plays right. that they, they did that. But there was a point in time where the Braves couldn't sell at a playoff game. And it didn't feel like despite winning 14 out of 15 games, they were they had as big a rivalry as like the Mets and the Phillies did. Yeah, I don't know because because the Braves always won. How can you have a rivalry when you never win? Oh, that's what I'm saying. Teams, it was like it was like there was almost a malaise right, about the team. Right. Oh, the Braves won again, and, and to the point where the fans decided, eh, a playoff game. We'll see if they get further and win this round, and maybe we'll go if it's the League Championship Series or the World Series. Or something. Now, I think eventually the Braves, you know, took care of that, but they were having trouble selling those games out, which just you know boggles my mind. Yeah, a playoff game from from the standpoint. So I, I think you know. We we want the, the the Pirates and the Reds to sort of get back to um, you know being a 
more consistently relevant team, I think, would be what I what I like, want teams to be irrelevant do. because the players they have just aren't very good. I don't want teams to be bad because they're not spending the money to be good or to be good because they're spending the money. You know, the Dodgers have sort of, you know, yep, we know they're going to spend nearly the most money. Now, at a certain point, maybe they won't maintain this level of spending right. and they will, you know, like they'll, the Red Sox did. They'll say, t- you know what? We won the World Series. We're going to take the foot off the gas and let tighten Mickey up Betts a go little bit and tighten up a little bit. How's that worked out for the Red Sox? Pretty well. Yeah, yeah, so far. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Almost Coop.